Pride Sunday, seven, almost 62 years after Stonewall, which was the catalyst for what Pride Sunday is. And so we stand here in a time when we take a look every year of what pride means to me. And so what I want to ask your indulgence in today is if you will indulge me in how pridefully I stand on the shoulders of some ancestors. Because one of the things that I'm noticing in my journey as I come to that as what Carl Jung would call the autumn of my life, that when I look back, I'm hearing our stories are not necessarily being told anymore. That pride is moving forth as a celebration, a celebration as it should, because that was the vision. But we cannot forget those that helped to bring us here so that vision might be manifest. And so, as I was preparing today, I thought, well, first of all, I want to say, just to, to take a moment, to say, I could have been virtual, because I'm kind of loving our Sunday morning celebrations on virtual. I have this big, comfy leather chair that I can hear the Reverend Dr. Andriette at such a deeper level with my feet up and my coffee cup in hand. But I also wanted to be here because this sanctuary, this building is a vision that I could see before we ever hammered the first nail or changed a light bulb in this place. I knew exactly where the stage would be. I knew the apron that would be built for the Reverend Dr. Andriette to stand on and to move on as she does. I knew where the portrait of Harriet Tubman would hang. And I knew exactly where the teaching symbol that was a gift to us from the Center of Spiritual Living Fresno as a housewarming would be so that anyone walked in the door would be very clear to understand that we know that if you want to change your life, you must first change your mind. And that whatever you are called to be, do, and have, when you come here as a part of your discipleship, you'll get it. You'll get clear on it. So I had to get out of my chair. I had to come stand on this stage. I had to be able to see it all come together and to feel the energy. Because what I know to be true, when you all walked into this room, you felt the love and the energy of anyone who painted, cleaned, nailed, constructed, or did anything to get it ready. And simultaneously and at the same time, we co-created a live streaming event that would allow the energy that comes forth from this room to go right out over the airwaves. So how could I not be here? 
How could I not be here on Pride Sunday? Because I want to tell you about some folks. I want to tell you about Dwayne Fraze. Now, Dwayne Fraze is not a name. Most of these names you will never have heard of before. But they are in this very room with their energy. Dwayne Fraze was the tackle of the Winchester Community High School football team. He was the manager of the wrestling team. And he was the first man that I ever loved. And he was the reason why I was never bullied. I was never picked on. I was never even made fun of for being fat, for being gay, or for being anything. Because they knew they would have to deal with Dwayne. So, I was able to have that vision of knowing what love was at 16 years old when the day that he bought his first Ford Mustang, he drove it to my house and handed me the keys and said, where are we going? Any time that we went out in public, he insisted that I would wear his varsity jacket because he goes, I can only appreciate it when I see it on you. So that was my friend. That was my friend that went away into the army because this was a time when we were dealing with the draft and you had the lottery number. And I really put my first practice of this faith into play and I didn't even know what it was. You know, because at that time you drew a lottery based on your birthday. And if you had a number that came up between 0 and 180, you were not allowed to register for school that semester because you were drafted. My number was 365. Dwayne's number was 40. So he went and he served and we sent letters back and forth and we stayed in touch and then there was that first homecoming weekend at Indiana State University where he came to visit and I introduced him to my new friends and, you know, I talked about, you know, as soon as I'm done from school, you know, I'll come back to Winchester, I'll become a teacher and we can be on the farm and he said, no, you won't. It was that scene from Goodwill Hunting when Ben Affleck's character said to the other character, no, you've got to go. You've got stuff to do. You've got to go out in the world and make a difference. So I didn't understand it then, but that was the last time I saw Dwayne. But I went out in the world and I met other people, you know, people like Ray Shoemate. Ray Shoemate was, you know, you remember that first day of college and your parents are there and you're that kid that's embarrassed that your parents are there. You know, it's like, can you drop me off at the corner? You know, well, I'll be fine. So we're moving into my dorm and there's another family and another kid in the elevator. And my mom says, You should speak to him. You guys should be friends. Mom, no. His mom said, what a good idea. I bet you guys are on the same floor. So I met Ray Shoemate in the elevator that day. Ray would become one of my best friends and we'd be a wingman for one another and he eventually followed me to California when I moved to California. Then I met Greg Gravemeyer. 
Greg Gravemeyer, you know, when I started school, I graduated on May 26th and started college on June 4th. I was that ready. So I attended summer school. Well, Greg attended summer school, and we had a class together, and we had lunch every day that first summer that I was in summer school. And Greg would soon become one of my best friends, and he actually grew up in the same church that I did. I grew up in the Christian church, Disciples of Christ. Greg grew up in the Christian church, Disciples of Christ, in Linton, Indiana, so we became fast friends, and he convinced me to join this group that is called SCAMPS. Serving Christ alone means personal satisfaction. Okay. Now, I don't want to scare Brannis, but I was a part of the choir, mostly because I pantomimed really well. So my friends, Greg and I and John and Mark and Max, and, you know, we were a part of this choir, and we were traveling all throughout Illinois and all throughout Indiana with this minister by the name of Reverend Walter Puckett. And Reverend Walter Puckett was there to recruit more folks to come to Indiana State University. So we're on stage in somewhere in Illinois. We've just sung. We've just dazzled them. They just, you know, they're so ready for us. And Mr. Reverend Puckett is from the pulpit, and he starts to talk about Anita Bryant. And he says, there will never be a homosexual in my choir. And I thought, well, one, two, three, four, five, six. And I thought, I can't be here no more. I cannot be here anymore. This is, mm -mm. I took dominion over it, and by the grace of God, I did not allow him to negate my faith. It was just, oh, not here. Not here. God, I prayed, help me find the right place. Then I met a gentleman by the name of John Belkus. John Belkus, oh, charming, dark, good-looking, mm-hmm. Graduate from San Francisco State University, came back to Indiana for the holidays. We met over the holidays, and he said, you'd love California. Gosh, you'd love California. I'm going to go back to California. I'm going to go back to San Francisco and get my master's degree, and it would be great if we went together. We could have a little house. We could, you know, just you really painted this picture. And I, you know, I was raised by my parents. It's like, well, I'm going to go see first. So we brought John out to California, got him set up, ready to go for his master's work, and went to North Beach, had dinner in a cafe outside on a lovely warm night in San Francisco. That was the illusion. (laughs) And I knew I'm being called to be here. So I went back to Indiana, gave notice at my job, and I loved how the universe worked. There was another gentleman that I worked with whose whose home had burnt down, and they had, the insurance company had bought him and built him a new home, but he had no furniture. 
So he came to me and he goes, I'll give you X amount of dollars for everything in your house. Thank you, God. I didn't, I packed up my 1974 Monte Carlo and I was getting ready to come to California and I had my last night at work because I worked from 3 in the afternoon to 11 at night. And the company that I worked for, the folks were having a going away party. And the phone rang. You ready to leave? Yes, car's all packed. Going to go. Okay, well, I have a question. Oh, what's the question? I hope you're not coming for me, are you? Because I've met someone. No, not at all. I'm coming for me. And I hung up the phone and I walked out the door, got in my car, and started driving and wouldn't stop until I got to Denver because I wanted to be sure I was doing it for me. But when I got to Denver, I knew that I would be at least halfway and I could go back or I could go on. And so I came on and I got to San Francisco on a Saturday night, and those of you that know the Bay Area thought, oh, I don't know where I'm going to stay. Let's see. The exit off of the freeway was Fifth Street. Okay, let me go to the phone book and find a hotel. You know, back when they had phone book. Okay. I went to the phone book in the lobby of the hotel in Denver and found the Seneca Hotel, Fifth and Market. That must be good. So I roll into San Francisco, I get to the Seneca Hotel, and I walk up to the desk, and I said, I have a reservation. He goes, oh, yeah, do you, want a, do you want a room, or do you want a room with a bathroom? Who would ever stay in a hotel room without a bathroom? Apparently, lots of people <laughs> south of Market at 5th and 6th Street in San Francisco. That was kind of the style of the hotel. And so I walked out, and I thought, what am I going to do? I can't leave. There was no place to put my car, and I looked up, and I saw the neon lights for the Hilton Hotel. So I drove across Market Street, parked my car at the Hilton Hotel, and walked back to the Seneca. The next morning, I awakened to noise, to bands, to music, to all kinds of stuff going on. I thought, what could this be? And I went, got dressed and went down and I walked up to Market Street and it was Pride Sunday. And I saw more people like me than I even knew that could be. And I thought, okay, we're not in Indiana anymore. And this is, this is going to be all right. So I went to the Bradley Employment Agency that Monday. And as I'm waiting in the waiting room, I sit next to this young man by the name of Patrick Niebauer. And Patrick says to me, oh, are you scared? We, I just moved here from Nebraska. I just moved here from Indiana. Do you think we'll get jobs? Oh, maybe. We'll see what happens. And so we each got our job order to go on a job interview. And I had an interview card for California First Bank, owned by the Bank of Tokyo. He had a, a ticket to go to the Mark Hopkins Hotel, the accounting department. And I said, okay, well, you go to your interview, I'll go to my interview, 
and we'll check back at lunchtime. So we did. I went to my interview, loved it, human resources. I knew I could nail it. He went to his interview, loved it. We talked at lunch, and it was like, okay, where are you going this afternoon? And he looked at his card and said, California First Bank. And I looked at my appointment for the afternoon. It was the Mark Hopkins Hotel. And I looked at him, and I said, did you really love that job? And he goes, yeah, I really love mine, too. Let's go to the movies. So we went to the movies, and we each got the job. We each got the job, and Patrick and I dated for about a year, and we met folks. And I, So the landing in California at that time was effortless. And soon everyone from Indiana was interested in coming out. My friend Tom King came out. My friend Ray Shoemake came out. My friend Bob Koenig came out. They all moved out here from Indiana because I was the demonstration that when you say you have a vision and a purpose to do it, you can make it happen, and I made it happen. Then that first day, that first day at California First Bank, my job was to take photos for the badge IDs of the new folks. That was the entry-level job in HR. They figured you couldn't hurt yourself. So I go in to take a photograph of the first person that I'm going to meet there, and it was this gentleman by the name of Glenn Jordan. Glenn was tall, good-looking, blonde, with big blue eyes, and we just started talking, and in that talking, you just knew that this was someone you were supposed to meet. And Glenn was telling me this story about how he was emancipated at 15 because his parents put him out for being gay. Kicked him out. Didn't want to have anything to do with him. So he, raised, he worked at McDonald's. He slept in friends' sofas. He went from car to car, and he finally made it to where now he was working in accounting in a company and had a great job. He was in our accounting department at California First Bank. And he says, but what are you doing? You should come to my house tonight for dinner because I would love for you to meet my partner, Gary Stroher. And more about Gary later. So I said, God kept supporting me by putting the right people in the right place at the right time and that time in my life. And I thought, look at God being God. And so we would go to dinner, and I meet Lee Lastly, and I meet Glenn's partner, Gary Stroher, and I meet another friend by the name of Chuck Frady. And, you know, we're all like-minded people, and we're talking, and we're enjoying it, and we're getting to know one another. And I realized they had all just done this personal development training called LifeSpring. Now, if you know of LifeSpring, that brought us Dr. Judith Rich, is one of the facilitators that was at LifeSpring at that time. And so that's where you really started to work on your own personal development and understanding who you are in the world. And frankly, how your life got to be the way that it is. So we were doing that, and it's like, I remember walking out of this advanced training one day and saying to Gary, you know, I get this, but if I could just find a place where we could put this understanding of personal development together with some spirituality, 
Wouldn't that be something? And so, well, maybe. So we started to explore and kind of look around. And there was this woman speaking at the Marin Civic Center who had just released a new book called What You Think of Me is None of My Business. So we go to the Marin Civic Center. We hear her speak, and it was great. It was good. And she was there as a guest event to sign people up for this class called Mastery and Living that was going to take place at the Cathedral Hill Hotel in San Francisco. And so we're there. We're paying attention. And it's kind of time to go. We met Terry and her husband. And, yeah, it's nice, nice, nice. Move on. Move on. And Gary pulls me back, and he says, stop. I really want to do this, but I do not want to grow in my life without you. I want you to be my spiritual God, brother. Let's go on this journey together. I was in. You know, the greatest way to ever encourage someone is to ask them to come with you to do something. So, Gary asked me, we signed up for Mastery and Living at the Cathedral Hill Hotel. And, of course, we were late the first night. We get there, and over 400 people have already taken their seats. There's one empty, two empty chairs left, one for Gary, one for me, next to this beautiful black woman who I would come to know as the Reverend Andrietta Earl. So in 1982, we met in that class with Terry Whitaker. The three of us then kind of became the compadres for our spiritual development and taking every class that we could possibly take. And then we went on. So I would love to have you all meet my friends that I have talked about. I would love to share stories with that, but see, there's a problem. They're all gone. They're all gone. I was a survivor. And so what happened to me at that time, I suddenly got to see how the universe worked and I started at 33, 34, 35 years old in the most sacred way, making up. Because no church would bury my friends. No funeral home would touch their bodies. And I didn't know what to do, but I thought, not on my watch. I will find a way. I will become a minister. I will make it, you know, if I have to make it up, I'll make it up. But I knew I was in a practice. I was in this community called Centers for Spiritual Living, and I was like, I was like okay, what, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to finish? I was the last named practitioner with Terry Whitaker Ministries. I was on the fast track with her ministry to become a minister, and then she said, I'm not doing it no more. I'm going to go with Shirley McLean. We're going to visit Ramtha. We're going to go to India for a year. Well, that's all in nice, but that wasn't a part of my plan. So 
I immediately thought, and I've done this workshop with many of you all been in, when you get to about 95% in life of what you want, then something happens, you know, well, I gave it a good shot. I found another religious science minister that I knew that would know Terry, that would know, could put all the pieces together, and I said, here's what I've done. What would it take for you to ordain me? Well, because he was a part of the LGBTQ plus community, he was more than happy to do that. So Reverend Daniel Pursuti of the California Institute, San Francisco Institute of Religious Science at that time said, come on, we'll do this. So I had my ordination in 1985, just in time to get ready to have the first years of my ministry to be two things. One, dealing with the hundreds of pissed off people in the most spiritual way that was mad that Terry Whitaker had stopped doing what she was doing. And the LGBTQ plus community was getting no pastoral care from anywhere else but what Gary and I and others would provide. So we started to do that. And we went to do that. And then, like I said, we kind of lost them all. And so what I realized in my journey that there's one or two ways that I could look at this. And maybe what I am called to teach is this thing that resonates with me in our teaching that it's about the level of consciousness you choose to live in. I could make a choice to live in the level of consciousness where life happens to me, and I would damn well be entitled to live there. Because I lost 19 people in my life within a decade. But then I thought, no, wait a minute. What was the common thing that each one of them taught me in my life? What they each taught me in my life was to take dominion over my life. And so what we know in our levels of consciousness that we teach in order to get from the plateau of where life happens to me to the life where by me takes me to take dominion of my life to get to that level. And to get to that level when I'm in that level where life happens in my charge, by me, in my domain, the next one is through me. That means surrounding myself with like-minded people. I got that. I've got that right here. I can do that. Look at that. So Reverend Andriad a couple of weeks ago talked about this thing about being disciples. I perked up. I grew up in the Disciples of Christ Church. It was like I was raised up in my chair. Oh, she's talking to me. What she's saying about these disciples, what she's talking about with the disciples is they were there to learn, absorb, and to get all that they could get from the master teacher. Look at our vision, a loving and compassionate world-class teaching and empowerment ministry. You can come here to be a disciple to learn as much as you can possibly learn about how life got to be the way that it is. And more importantly, how to get from where you are to where you want to be. We must be grateful for this. So here we are. We are masters at manifesting. 
we think about it. Valda and Everett and I especially could attest to this yesterday. Just 13 years ago, we weren't more of an idea. We were packing and moving a lot of ideas in our back storage room yesterday to make them neat and tidy. We have done some manifesting over the years. But more important, we have brought together hundreds of people in these last 12 years to know what it is to be seen, to know what it is to be loved, and to know what it is to be valued. But all this was just in preparation. That's the message that I'm coming here today. I'm calling you all into your apostleship. Because we've got to go out there now. Just as that biblical scripture talked about a couple of weeks ago, you've got to leave it all behind. Okay. We've, we've done our work. We've done our disciple work. It's time to go out there. But just even after the master teacher came back and told the disciples that's what they needed to do, it was like, oh, but no. They might crucify us just like they crucified you. Doesn't matter. That's not what you're called to do. When life happens as you, it happens as your apostleship unfolds wherever you need to be. We can come home to get recharged. We can come home to go to the next learning, to understand. It's like, this happened, but I didn't, I didn't know what to do out there. i got to come home so I can understand what to do. That's okay. We'll come here. We'll practice our discipleships. We'll grow even more. We'll expand every more, even more, so that we can go out there. There's some stuff happening out there. Am I right, women? You know, we never had a dream that we would have to consider Roe versus Wade again. And if it can happen to Roe versus Wade, it can happen to gay marriage. And if it can happen to gay marriage, it can happen to being Jewish. If it can happen to being Jewish, it can be happened to a center, a spiritual center, who has the audacity to say that the true name of Jesus is Heshua. What are you all doing down there? We're going to pass an ordinance to close your doors, so you can't do that. So as apostles, would you be strong enough, would you be caring enough to do like the early Christians did in China where they would meet in root cellars to study the text in order so that they could understand theology a little bit better? Would we do that? When we walk by the sign on the door that says we envision a world that works for everyone, I would have to ask the question, would I be in that world? Who would we want in and who would we want out? And God is telling us we all go together or no one goes. So how do we get back on track? How do we, how do we practice in our discipleship a little bit so that we can come back 
and have this understanding. Okay, what more do I need to understand? Okay, let me get to Matthew 24, 25 where it says, and he was hungry and I fed him. Who y'all been feeding? Right now, Miss Paulette's the only one that's really given us a demonstration of that sometimes here at Heart and Soul. She's feeding us because she knows that we have work to go do out there in the world. Now, they were naked and I clothed them. Okay, we've done that a couple of times during the year. We put some lovely backpacks together. We've been serving our curbside community. But we still got to do it. We still have more to do. We've got to march. We've got to advocate for one another. Because we know, we know that we must have the voice in the town square too. You know, I stand on the shoulders of people that loved me and knew that I would be willing to come and speak the truth. This wonderful shawl that I have was given to me by a practitioner and a dear friend by the name of Chuck Frady. You know, it's the LGBT colors, it's a gay flag, and nobody would know it if they didn't know what they were looking at. But it's okay. Chuck was that practitioner who would often say to people, your good lies elsewhere, may you quit me to it. That's the spiritual equivalent to bless your heart. Your good lies elsewhere. May you quick me to it. And then he would move on. And he did move on. But he knew that I was going to carry on. So all of them, the one thing that they had in common is what I started this talk with is that they all, to a person, believed in love. They believed love would conquer everything. They believed that every fight, every opportunity to stand up for one another was all based in love. And if you did it in love, you would be recognized for having done your best. I've tried my whole life to be a good ally. And I know that my privilege sometimes and the way that I was raised sometimes allows it so that I don't even see what I need to see to understand. I hope you'll show me. Because my heart believes in love. And I also know that you all want to be allies to the LGBTQ plus community. And I know that in some churches especially here in Oakland, that's still not a safe place to be. And so I'm going to ask that you'll be our allies even in this. But I want you to know at the end of the day, above all else, I believe in love. So as we close today, I'm going to ask that you close your eyes and join me in knowing that there is one God, one only God, and that God is love. And each and every one of us are aligned with that one God. And so we give thanks. 
We give thanks for this opportunity to come together as disciples to understand a little deeper, a little more about how our world got to be the way that it is and how we got to move from one level of consciousness to another so that we can be the best apostle that we are called to be. That we know that when we aspire and get to that point in our life where life happens as us, we are purely connected with the one spirit, the one God that is love. And we can go out and proclaim to the world that love is love is love. And we don't have to say another word about it. We know that we are enough. That God did not make a mistake when he made anyone in this room. And that any gift you have is the gift that you were called to give to the world. And it might not be that pretty painting that you can paint. It may not be that song you can sing. It might be that very trauma that you have overcome and know the way out. That may be your calling. So I say, I am ready as I know God is always ready. And I let go and release any doubt of what should have been, could have been, might have been, ought to have been by anybody's perception and release it into knowing that I only care what the divine cares about. So as we come to this place where we walk with the divine, we say, I'm ready. I am ready to show up. I am ready to be my best self. I am ready to be impeccable with my word. I am ready not to take things personally. I am ready not to make assumptions. And I am ready to do my best always for I listen and I discern for the guidance that Spirit offers me. And so when I step out, I step out in faith. And even if I'm afraid, I know that fear is requiring faith, and faith is fear with a prayer, and so that I can move forward. So I give thanks for this gathering, these folks that have come together, whether they've come together with us virtually or whether they've come together with us in this room. I say thank you, thank you, thank you. If one thing resonated with you today, if your life moved one little bit, no that is our friend, the Dr. Sandrea, would say, then you've shifted the world one step as well. And so together we simply say, thank you, God, and so it is. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Love matters. <laughs>